0: We're going to be continuing in the book of Exodus together, continuing where we left off in the scripture reading through chapter 11. We'll be looking at chapter 11 and, Lord willing, through chapter 13 and verse 16. And as you turn there, I'd like to pray for the preaching of this message. God of glory, to think of preaching about the death of the firstborn and the Passover and the substitute lamb slain in the place of your people is a weighty thing. What man is sufficient to preach of such glorious things. It makes a man want to sit down and be silent rather than speak, but this is a time for speaking. This is a time for seeing your glory, so we pray that you would strengthen our weak bodies and minds to behold you and to comprehend the greatness of your love and that you would carry out such destruction to carry out such a great deliverance, which would absolutely change the world. Pray that you help me to preach with clarity, with passion. I pray that this would be the most fruitful sermon that I have ever preached in terms of your words being echoed from the mouths of the whole congregation to our children of your Passover and cross work and that that word would sound forth to children yet to be born, that this sermon would have a multi-generational testimony of your salvation on the earth until you complete your entire salvation plan. And we wait for that day and the glory to come with hope. Amen. Exodus is about revealing God's name. It's about revealing His character and His will. It's about who God is and what God does. And who is God? God is God. Nobody else is. No other thing is. And what does God do? He brings salvation. And when He brings salvation, He destroys and He delivers And previously, in looking in Exodus together, we saw that the plagues in Exodus teach us that God alone has glory. They teach us who really has dominion on the earth, that Pharaoh and the false Egyptian gods don't, that only Yahweh is in charge, Uh, only God is the God of creation and history. They teach us who really controls geography and genealogy. And at this point, all the geography is destroyed, and in the plague of the firstborn, which we will read of, the genealogy is destroyed. It's Pharaoh's firstborn versus Yahweh's firstborn, and the salvation of God's son will be the death of Pharaoh's son. And how was the sons of Israel to respond to this momentous event? They were to respond with bowing low and worshiping. And to tell their children that this deliverance that had happened is all about the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Coming up to this point in the book of Exodus, you may remember from chapter 4 that Moses had warned Pharaoh. And he said, Thus says Yahweh, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I said to you, let my son go that he may serve me. But you have refused to let him go Behold, I will kill your son, your firstborn. Such a severe statement would make any man crumble. But God hardened this man's heart so that he would stand up to the very end, to the last plague. As God's game plan played out in Exodus 7, and he tells his plan for revealing his name to Israel and Egypt and all the earth. Where he says, But I will harden Pharaoh's heart with stiffness. Why would he do that? That I may multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. But Pharaoh will not listen to you. And I will set my hand upon Egypt and bring out my host, my people, the sons of Israel, from the land of Egypt by great judgments. Then the Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the sons of Israel from their midst. As we continue in Exodus 11, which was read for us this morning, we see these things happening that Yahweh said would happen. 11.1 begins saying, Then Yahweh said to Moses, One more plague I will bring on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will surely drive you out from here completely. In other words, Pharaoh's going to want to do what God wants to do, which has been the case all along. God is going to break Egypt and have Israel leave even with their favor. Everyone's going to love Moses when he leaves because greatness is going to move from Pharaoh to the least of these Moses and those slaves, the Israelites. And Yahweh says that it's about midnight that he is going to go into the midst of Egypt. God does this personally. There's no staff that does it, there's no mediator involved. It's just God does this. And he shows Pharaoh's throne being defeated and showing who really does sit on the throne of creation. And he attacks Pharaoh's firstborn. He goes at the highest in the land to the lowest in the land, the servant gruel. And he reaches out to the depth in the land, even the cattle. Verses 6 and 7 tell us that a great cry will be heard in all the land of Egypt, but with the sons of Israel, a dog will not even bark. There would be a distinction between these two peoples and two places. Pharaoh had made the sons of Israel cry in the past, but now the Egyptians will cry. And the contrast in Israel will be, nobody will be crying there. Not even a dog will make a sound. There will be utter silence. Why would this be? So that you, Pharaoh, may know how Yahweh makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. Pharaoh and his servants would learn that Pharaoh is nothing and Yahweh is everything. And they would learn this when they found that the next so-called God of Egypt to the throne would be found dead. There was only one God who controls life and death, and it has never been Pharaoh the servants who were the taskmasters of Egypt who would beat them and force them into their labors will be found bowing and worshiping Yahweh to demonstrate a total defeat. They will bow the knee and echo God's command, go and worship Yahweh. And all of this sets up for the signature defining moment of the Exodus. This event is like the cross in the New Testament, but here it is the Passover in the First Testament, which we read of beginning in chapter 12, if you want to join me in looking at that together. Exodus 12, Now Yahweh said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be the beginning of months for you. It is to be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month they are each one to take a lamb for themselves, according to their father's households, a lamb for each household. Now if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his neighbor nearest to his house are to take one according to the number of the persons in them. According to what each man should eat, you are to apportion the lamb." Your lamb shall be a male, without blemish, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall slaughter it at twilight. Moreover, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat, and they shall eat the flesh that night, roasted with fire. And they shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled at all with water, but rather roasted with fire, both its head and its legs along with its entrails. And you shall not leave any of it over until morning. But whatever is left of it until morning, you shall burn with fire. Now you shall eat it in this manner, with your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Passover of Yahweh, and I will go through the land of Egypt, and on that night, and will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt. I will execute judgments. I am Yahweh." And the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and there shall be no plague among you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This section of Scripture is like an order of service for the Lord's Lamb Supper. This is what you're going to do, and it's going to teach you about certain things, about death, and resurrection, being dead to God but raised to be a new people with a new life unto Him. And the timing of all of this is important. It happens on the first month of the year, but it wasn't the Egyptians' first month of the year. This is a totally new calendar with a new official beginning of the year, all of time in Israel's mind revolves around this one day. So it would teach them, this is what your nation is about. Your nation is about Passover. In America, our day that we celebrate is July 4th of that historical day on 1776, which is Independence Day, where it communicates to Americans that they're about independence. But for Israel, it was more about their Dependence. They were the salvation people. They were the people who needed salvation, and God gave it to them. And this would be their national identity, saved. And this would be their purpose, make His salvation known. And it was to be spoken to all the congregation of Israel, each one This was truth that was communicated not only congregationally, but personally. It wasn't just something that was for the nation, but for you and your family and your neighbor. The entire societal structure of the nation was involved in this. This was an all-consuming corporate event. Every single person was involved. Every single person was served. And Passover, as it was given to the Israelites, was Salvation 101 class for them about lamb. And it was a male and it was without blemish and a year old. And the basics of salvation that they were learning was about sacrifice and atonement. Salvation involves sacrifice. And you can't have salvation without a worthy sacrifice a lamb male, unblemished. The nation needed to know that sacrifice is related to salvation, and that sacrifice was tied to creation. It would happen at twilight, it would happen at evening, but in the morning things would be different. The things that were slaughtered in the darkness would bring about a new day with the time and the things of darkness being gone and coming into a time of light. How was this sacrifice to be understood? By believing and listening to what God says about blood atonement, which blots out the sins of those who trust and obey Him. And they were to eat the flesh. Why was it roasted? Why was the bread to be unleavened? Well, the point is to teach them salvation is to be quick. Why was it not to be raw? Well, they needed the blood for their doorpost. Why was it not boiled? That takes too long. Why did it have to be quickly? Because God's deliverance is quick. It's swift. It doesn't struggle. And these actions were showing them what deliverance was like. And why would they have bitter herbs with this deliverance meal to remember salvation from bitter days, and that when God did it, it was quick, it was decisive. And why were there to be no leftovers? Because it was decisive, they'd been delivered, you're not going by, back, there's no leftovers. You don't linger. Remember Lot's wife? You exit, you don't look back, and you keep going. You have a new life, and the remnants of the old are gone forever. So eat it. Gird up the loins of your mind to think about these things, prepare for your deliverance and walk in it. These instructions here, as you notice, are they're God-focused. They're not self-focused. This was Yahweh's Passover, and he repeats this phrase that is repeated throughout all this book of Exodus, I am Yahweh. And this is the Passover. This Passover salvation is the the signature move of God's name. What you see in our Lord Jesus, whose name means Yahweh saves. And there is no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. And this Passover also teaches that salvation is by grace alone. And it's a grace that's brought to you by God providing a sacrifice, God providing atonement. And so the people would learn if you want mercy and grace, God has to give you a sacrifice. He has to provide atonement. And if you don't have sacrifice and judgment, or if you don't have sacrifice and atonement, you get judgment. So what was learned in Salvation 101 class was to be remembered forever which we see in that tie to the Feast of Unleavened Bread, that it's to be a memorial. We're picking up in chapter 12, verse 14. Now, this day will be a memorial to you, and you shall celebrate it as a feast to Yahweh throughout your generations. You are to celebrate it as a perpetual statute. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, but on the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses." Whoever eats anything leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. Now, on the first day, there shall be a holy convocation, and on the seventh day, there shall be a holy convocation for you. No work at all shall be done on them, except what must be eaten by every person. That alone may be done by you. You shall also keep the feast of unleavened bread. For on this very day, I brought your host out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall keep this day throughout your generations as a perpetual statute. In the first month, on the 14th day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. Seven days there shall be no leaven found in your houses. For whoever eats what is leavened, that person shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel. Whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land, you shall not eat anything leavened. In all your places of habitation you shall eat unleavened bread. Then Moses called for all the elders of Israel and said to them, Bring out and take for yourselves lambs according to your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. And you shall take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood which is in the basin and touch some of the basin that is in the basin to the lintel and the two-door And none of you shall go outside the doorway of his house until morning. And Yahweh will pass through to smite the Egyptians. And he will see the blood on the lintel and on the two-door post. And Yahweh will pass over the doorway and will not allow the destroyer to come into your houses to smite you, And you shall keep this event as a statute for you and your children forever. And it will be when you enter the land which Yahweh will give you, as He has promised, you shall keep this new slavery. And it will be when your children say to you, what is the meaning of this new slavery to you? That you shall say, it is a Passover sacrifice to Yahweh who passed over the houses of the sons of Israel in Egypt. When he smote the Egyptians, but delivered our homes. And the people bowed low and worshiped. Then the sons of Israel went and did so, just as Yahweh had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. The importance of this day is hinted at because it's the first. Month of the year for Israel in their new calendar. God is making this an official national holiday, a memorial feast, a feast of remember redemption. And how many days were they to eat unleavened bread? Seven. Why seven? Well, to remind them of creation theology, that God is saving them unto being a new creation, to celebrate. God is their creator who will move all the old slavery and bring them into a new slavery. they will remove all of the old burdens and bring them in to rest. And so, on the first day, they were to Sabbath leaven from their houses. They were to remove it, and those things were to cease to be in their lives. And this day was a holy convocation in which they wouldn't do any work for their salvation. God alone would be doing all of the work for their salvation because what is the Sabbath about? It's God's rest, and it's a salvation that's not just about what you're saved from, but what you're saved to. Not that you're just saved from sin, but you're saved to a holy life in God and resting in His works, there will be a rest for God's people. And this is how it works. You can't have God's rest apart from God's salvation. And you can't have salvation apart from sacrifice. And you can't have sacrifice apart from atonement. Now, was this something that was for the sons of Israel only? No, this was a truth to be proclaimed to the whole world. They were to observe it and being discipled by the Lord in salvation so that they could evangelize other people in the salvation that they had received. And how were they to implement this Feast of Unleavened Bread? Well, they were to do it with right implementation and a right heart. The right implementation was that the family heads were to follow the instructions concerning the lamb, the blood, the basin, the lentil, the doorpost, and not going out until morning. And the men were to instruct their children forever about blood atonement, about how some people were destroyed and others were passed over and delivered, but it was all because of this substitute sacrifice that the Lord graciously provided for us. The implementation was important because all the instructions taught theology to people. But they were not just to worship God with the right externals, but also the right internals. They were to have right implementation with a right heart attitude. As verse 25 talks about a future generation, when he says, When you enter the land, you're to keep this new slavery. And when that happens your kids are going to be curious. They're going to say, what is the meaning of this new slavery to you? They're not asking what to do. They're not saying, well, how do you do this ritual? But they're saying, why? Why do we do this? What's the meaning of it? You see, the heart attitude is wanting to understand slavery to God. We're being saved, to be a slave is what is being taught here, that the nature of this new slavery is the answer that was to be given in verse 27, that you will exist to observe and proclaim the saving nature of God, that He is a destroyer to those who don't trust in Him, but a deliverer to those who trust in Him. God is both judge and savior. Now, when you hear these things, you might think, this doesn't really sound like slavery to me. This sounds like a pretty good deal. Well, the answer is yes and no. It's slavery because God is your new master, but it doesn't sound like slavery because it's not a burden, it's a joy. Uh, you want to be a part of this. Uh, you want to do what Paul writes about in 1 Corinthians 5 and cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. What does the Passover mean? It's a sacrifice to Yahweh. It's about His deliverance. It's about a heart attitude that wants to say thank you somehow. It's about a life that's all about being all about Yahweh and rejoicing that you're not under an authoritarian and you have to, but you're under a gracious master and you get to. The right heart response is seen in the Israelites when they bowed low and worshiped. This is the right heart attitude. It's one of worship. It's one of service to God, slavery to God, worship to God. The theology of unleavened bread is about having pure worship, unmixed devotion and obedience. As this day continued on in chapter 12, if you Pick up with me in verse 29. We read more of what happened on this momentous day. Now, it happened at midnight that Yahweh struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of cattle. Then Pharaoh arose in the night. He and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was no home where there was not someone dead. Then he called for Moses and Aaron at night and said, Rise up and get out from among my people, both you and the sons of Israel, and go serve Yahweh as you have spoken. Take both your flocks and your herds as you have spoken, and go and bless me also." It happened at midnight that Yahweh had struck the firstborn, just as he said, and Pharaoh's firstborn was attacked and God carrying out retribution for the drowning of the sons of Israel in the Nile. Now, Egypt is nothing. Their economy is nothing. Their culture of false worship had all collapsed. Pharaoh is nothing, and his successor was dead. And for the first time, the acts of God move Pharaoh. He arose. He gets up. Now, you may recall in Exodus 2 that the Israelites were crying, but now there's just a great cry in Egypt and only Egypt because of what God said to Abraham, I will curse those who curse you. So, God reverses the cries of suffering back on Egypt, and they reap what they sowed. And God has basically made Egypt into what Israel was. And Pharaoh calls for Moses and Aaron, and what you see is he can't even talk to Moses and Aaron face to face anymore because he's afraid, he's ashamed, he's been humiliated. He's so defeated that he has to send somebody else in his place to go talk to these guys. Pharaoh recognizes that he isn't worthy to have royalty in his presence anymore. And so he says what God has been saying, go serve Yahweh. Pharaoh is here saying, I know what's happening here. You're not my slaves. You're you're Yahweh's slaves, and I take orders from you now. Pharaoh is no longer mocking them and saying that they were speaking false words, but he was recognizing that these were not empty threats, these were all true words. And he ends with saying, bless me also, as only the greater can do to the lesser, because Pharaoh recognized Moses and Aaron are greater, and I'm lesser. Pharaoh is learning Israel's identity and destiny, and that God is right. When God overcomes evil, you see that it's a real defeat of evil. He didn't just help the Israelites escape and sneakily sneak out in the middle of the night. But they were able to leave because God totally judged and totally defeated their enemies in past life. This teaches us that our God is the God who will totally defeat evil and will subjugate absolutely everything in creation to Himself. Yahweh's Word is happening exactly As he said, which we continue to see as we pick up in chapter 12 and verse 33. And the Egyptians strongly pressed the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, we will all be dead. So the people took up their dough before it was leavened with their kneading bowls, bound up in their clothes on their shoulders. Now the sons of Israel had done according to the word of Moses. They had asked the Egyptians for articles of silver and articles of gold and clothing. And Yahweh had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked for. Thus, they plundered the Egyptians. And the sons of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot aside from the little ones." "'A foreign multitude also went up with them, "'along with flocks and herds "'a very large number of livestock, "'and they baked the dough "'which they had brought out of Egypt "'into cakes of unleavened bread, "'for it had not become leavened, "'since they were driven out of Egypt "'and could not delay, "'nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. "'Now the time that the sons of Israel lived in Egypt "'was 430 years.' And it happened at the end of 430 years to the very day that all the host of Yahweh went out from the land of Egypt. It is a night to be kept for Yahweh, for having brought them out from the land of Egypt, this night is for Yahweh to be kept by all the sons of Israel throughout their generations. We see here in this text that the sons of Israel Plundered the Egyptians according to God's word. The Egyptians were totally defeated, morally defeated, economically defeated. The sovereign work of God in deliverance brought about recompense, giving back to the sons of Israel what was rightfully theirs and had been taken. And as we've already noted, they didn't just escape but they were overcomers. And about 600,000 men went out. Now you remember that this book of Exodus, it begins with a list of the names of the sons of Israel. This is a reminder to be tracing the seed promise, uh, to be tracing the family line through whom that seed would be born who would crush the head of the serpent. This is a recognition that God is doing what he said he would do. What he said to Abraham your children will be like the sand of the sea, and they'll also have the blessing of livestock. Now, we heard in this text also that there's a a foreign multitude that went out with the sons of Israel. God's plan wasn't just for Israel. It was also for Egyptians to be saved and everybody in the whole planet to come and see the glory of the God of Israel and to join into that family, which we read of that again in Revelation chapter 7, when there's a foreign multitude of every tribe, tongue, and nation giving praise to the God who deserves it. Why does Moses mention 430 years here? Well, because God has fulfilled what he said in Genesis 15 to their forefather Abraham to the very day. All the host of Yahweh have gone out. God has raised up his host. But what were they to do with this foreign multitude? Could that foreign multitude partake of the same salvation in the same way? Picking up in chapter 12, verse 43, we see the answer to that. And Yahweh said to Moses and Aaron, This is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it, but every man's slave purchased with money. After you have circumcised him, then he may eat of it. A foreign resident or a hired person shall not eat of it. It shall be eaten in a single house. You shall not bring forth any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any bone of it. All the congregation of Israel shall celebrate this. But if a sojourner sojourns with you and celebrates the Passover to Yahweh, let all his males be circumcised, and then let him come near to celebrate it, and he shall be like a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person may eat of it. The same law shall apply to the native as to the sojourner who sojourns among you. So all the sons of Israel did, as Yahweh had commanded Moses and Aaron, thus they did. And on the same day, Yahweh brought the sons of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their host. Who was it that could participate in the Passover? Well, only slaves who had been purchased, only slaves whose sons had been circumcised, only the redeemed. Well, why is there an emphasis on slaves? Because that's what Israel was, but they were redeemed. They were purchased, and they were to think about foreigners in their midst the same way. Only the people of God can participate this, only those who participate according to the same law. They're instructed to keep the sacrifice whole, to do no violence to it, to not break it, which would set up for a theology of crucifixion, of no bones being broken because God will keep his substitute whole. He will keep Jesus as the ultimate Passover lamb whole. At this point, communicating that the sacrifice must be kept whole and the people of God are the only ones who participate shows them that it was holy for them. The sojourners recognized and were to be taught that only the people of God can celebrate by worshiping the same way. They also had to be circumcised, and it says that of a sojourner, he shall be like a native of the land. This is not just about redemption, but about the deliverance of a sojourner becoming like a native of God's land. They're to have the same experience, not a different one. There wasn't two ways of salvation, just one. The experience wasn't meant just for Israel, but the whole world. Now, it is for Israel, but it was to extend in blessing to all nations. Here, we're learning a theology of redemption and slavery, that it's not just for Israel, but the whole world. And that freedom from slavery is not only for Israel, but the whole world. That this is about God's people extending God's salvation blessing to God's entire world. Continuing on in chapter 13, we read about the sanctifying of the firstborn. Chapter 13, verse 1. Then Yahweh spoke to Moses saying, Sanctify to me every firstborn, the first offspring of every womb among the sons of Israel, both of man and beast. It belongs to me. These redeemed people were to sanctify. They were to set apart to God who owns everything, every firstborn. And why were they to do that? Well, because they were learning that what's true of the firstborn is true of everybody and that God owns everything and He redeems every son that is connected to His firstborn. Continuing in Exodus thirteen three, and Moses said to the people, "'Remember this day in which you went out from Egypt from the house of slavery,' For by a strong hand, Yahweh brought you out from this place, and nothing leavened shall be eaten this day in the month of Abib. You are going out, and it shall be when Yahweh brings you to the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite, which he swore to your fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, that you shall do this service in this month, For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to Yahweh. Unleavened bread shall be eaten throughout the seven days, and nothing leavened shall be seen among you, nor shall any leaven be seen among you in all your borders. And you shall tell your son on that day, saying, It is because of what Yahweh did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it will be as a sign to you on your hand, And as a memorial between your eyes, that the law of Yahweh may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand, Yahweh brought you out of Egypt. Therefore, you shall keep this statute as its appointed time from year to year. And it will be when Yahweh brings you to the land of the Canaanite, as he swore to you and to your fathers and gives it to you. And you shall devote to Yahweh the first offspring of every womb, and the first offspring of every beast that you own, the males belong to Yahweh. But every first offspring of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, but if you do not redeem it, then you shall break its neck. And every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. And it will be when your son asks you in a time to come, saying, what is this? Then you shall say to him, with a strong hand, Yahweh brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. And it happened when Pharaoh hardened his heart with stiffness about letting us go that Yahweh killed every firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of beast. Therefore, I sacrifice to Yahweh the males, the first offspring of every womb, but every firstborn of my sons I redeem So it will be as a sign on your hand and as phylacteries between your eyes. For with a strong hand, Yahweh brought us out of Egypt. This is where everything comes together, where the God who is and was and is to come pulls together the past, the present, and the future with a focus now on a future generation, the generation who would enter into the promised land. They were to celebrate this corporate, personal Passover across multiple generations. Here we learn that God's message of salvation is personal and multi-generational. And in and you shall tell your son on that day, saying, It is because of what Yahweh did for me when I came out of Egypt. Why is that weird for somebody in the future, in the land, to be saying, It's because of what Yahweh did for me when I came out of Egypt. Because the person who's saying this wasn't there. They hadn't even been born yet. Well, what day are they talking about? They're talking about the Passover, And the person who's saying this is a future yet-to-be-born son of Israel that's dwelling in the land even hundreds of years later after the original Exodus. How can they say, because of what Yahweh did for me when I came out of Egypt? It's because God's acts aren't merely historical. They're personal. They weren't just for one generation but multiple generations moving forward from the Passover of the Exodus to the Passover when the Lamb of God was sacrificed on the cross. You could think about it this way in some songs that we know. Were you there when they nailed Him to that tree? Or at the cross, at the cross where you first saw the light and the burden of your heart? rolled away. We recognize in looking back at our Passover lamb, Christ, that those events that happened historically didn't get stuck during that time in history, but they're personal. We were there in Him. He was doing something for us. And this was to be a sign for them that involved their hand this passover meal that concerned their hand and their eyes just as the sons of Israel engage their heads and their hands in the memorial passover meal so also we we engage our heads and our hands when we partake of the development of the passover which is developed into the lord's Supper. We actually hold the gospel teaching instruction elements in our hands, and they're between our eyes. We look at them together, and they're in our mouths. Not only that you take the cup and the bread, but you speak about it. You tell people what the significance of those things are and why you take them, and they're taken as a memorial meal. We do it in remembrance of Jesus, And we take it as if it were for us because it is for us. It reaches back in history and applies to us personally today. But as we also know, in taking the Lord's Supper, we declare His coming to future generations every time we celebrate it. And it reminds us of our identity and purpose That we are the saved people who are all about God's salvation from the past Passover Lamb Supper to the present Lord's Lamb Supper to the future marriage supper of the Lamb when the Exodus is completed. The sons of Israel were told to keep this statute in remembrance of the Lamb of the Lamb Supper so that it would shape how they would view themselves and their relationship to God, that they're to be totally devoted to Him, that they totally belong to Him, and that they're His slaves now. Paul communicated to the, this to the Corinthians when he said to them, "'For you were bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body.'" One of the key words in chapter 13 is in verse 13, and it's that word, redeem. This is about redemption. Thirteen thirteen reads, But every first offspring of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. But if you do not redeem it, then you shall break its neck. And every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. This word redeem has the idea of buying something back, buying it back for a price. And in this case, it was done by substitution. You purchase back something with a substitute. And in this case, it's a donkey being compared to a man. Why would you compare a donkey and a man both needing a lamb? What are donkeys known for that men are also known for? Stiff necks and being stubborn. Now, if you resist such a comparison, you only prove its validity. But the question for ourselves is, you know, have you come to that point where you've been so humbled by yourself and the sight of the Lord that You see, that's right. I I have been stiff-necked. I have been stubborn. I deserve to have my neck broke unless God is gracious and gives me a lamb to die in my place. Do you really believe that it is a trustworthy saying and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am the foremost, Are you the type that says a prayer of thanks to yourself ever so often that you're not like other people? You don't manipulate things to your own advantage. You don't do bad stuff. You're not adulterous. You don't work for the IRS. You've been baptized, and you give money to the church sometimes. God did not come to call those kind of people who were thankful for their own righteousness. He didn't come to call the people who can explain why Those things they did are really okay. He came to call the ones who recognize that they're wrong and they need repentance. For the Son of Man has come to seek to save the lost, not the people who think that they're found. Have you really taken your place before God as a sinner who needs to be saved? Have you really abandoned trusting that you have some valid excuses for your sinful behavior? Have you come to really abandon justifying yourself and your actions and really believing that only Jesus can justify you? Do you really think that a donkey is a suitable comparison to what you are apart from Christ? If so, then praise God that He provides a lamb for the donkey, a Savior for stubborn, stiff-necked sinners. And praise God that the better that we understand our wretched state apart from Him, the deeper our gratitude grows in His grace. Praise God for a blameless lamb in place of blame-shifting man, Praise God for a spotless lamb in place of sin-spotted man. When we think about these truths, we recognize that they were addressed to the fathers of the sons of Israel to teach to their sons, which leads us to really looking at our, ourselves who are fathers in the room. Fathers... Do you teach your sons why you take the Lord's Supper? Do you teach them why you sacrifice? Why do you sacrifice your time and your money and your strength for the cause of the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ? Listen again to the great commission for fathers to disciple and evangelize their sons in Exodus thirteen, fourteen to sixteen. And it will be when your son asks you in time to come, saying, What is this? Then you shall say to him with a strong hand, Yahweh brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. And it happened when Pharaoh hardened his heart with stiffness about letting us go, that Yahweh killed every firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of beast. Therefore I sacrifice to Yahweh the males, the first offspring of every womb, but every firstborn of my sons I redeem. So it will be a sign on your hand, and as phylacteries between your eyes, for with a strong hand Yahweh brought us out of Egypt. You hear you hear, hear a father who is a disciple-making disciple of a son, who would be a disciple-making disciple. And it was all because of strong, the strong hand of Yahweh that this man sacrifices to Yahweh. Why do you sacrifice, Dad? Because I know Him. Because I belong to Him. Because He delivered me. He delivered me from my old life, and He's brought me into a new life. Dads, can you explain the meaning of the Lord's Supper to your children? And when you do it, can you also teach your children the testimony of how the Lord saved you? The beginning of Psalm 78 is instructive for us fathers in this way. I'll read you the first eight verses. Give ear, O my people, to my instruction. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will pour forth dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known, and our fathers have recounted to us. We will not conceal them from their children, but recount to the generation to come the praises of Yahweh and his strength and his wondrous deeds that he has done for he established a testimony in Jacob and set a law in Israel which he commanded our fathers that they should teach them to their children that the generation to come might know even the children yet to be born that they may arise and recount them to their children that They should set their confidence in God and not forget the deeds of God, but observe His commandments and not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that did not prepare its heart and whose spirit was not faithful to God. Men, we have inherited a legacy of theology A legacy of fearing the Lord in bold, confident obedience that is to be passed down to our children and children yet to be born, to teach them about what does it mean to be a slave of God? What does it mean to be the redeemed of God? What does it mean that Jesus broke our slavery to sin through His substitute sacrifice And how does that change how we live? This is a call to teach our children that God also predestined us to be conformed to the image of His Son so that He would be the firstborn among many brothers, so that we would bear the family likeness of being like our elder brother, Christ, and to teach them that it's by the mercies of God that I present my body as a sacrifice, living, holy, and pleasing to God, which is my reasonable service of worship. It makes more sense than anything in life to serve God and to belong to him and for everything in your life to be holy to him, to teach our sons that God made you, he owns you, you belong to him, And you'll be most happy when you're most holy to Him. The Passover is the heart of Exodus. It's the lens through which the Exodus is to be understood. It reveals who God is and what God does. That He's a God of salvation who destroys the old and delivers into the new. It teaches us how to understand that there's a very real distinction between those who come to trust in God's salvation plan and those who are stubborn towards it, and that there's a very real deliverance from a very real threat of death. The Passover is so significant in history as you see it reoriented time itself, just as the next Passover, in the Scripture did, and changed our calendars from B.C. to A.D. The Passover is about a new beginning. It's about a new creation. It's about new life on the other side of death to the old life. It's about having a new master and a new slavery because God conquers the serpent dragon through slain lamb, with a salvation that is of destruction and deliverance. The Passover was set forth to the sons of Israel so that the whole world might come to know the God of Exodus. And don't overlook the fact that that's happening right now. These same things are being proclaimed because fathers told their sons, and their sons told their sons. The Passover was set forth so that others might taste and see that the Lord is kind, and that by sacrifice and strength the God of history and creation is an unchangeable deliverer who will unhindered bring others into the experience of their forefathers, the same salvation in the same way. And presently, we still wait for the completion of this deliverance, as today we still celebrate what the Passover has developed into when we take the bread and we drink the cup, remembering what has happened and what is to come, while enjoying our freedom to enjoy a foretaste of the glory to come in the sacrificial service to our redeeming God. Let's close in prayer as the music team comes forward. What a Savior and what a God are you, the God who alone has glory, the God who is Sovereign over evil, even evil so great as the time under that Pharaoh whose lineage was destroyed. May we note not only your severity but also your kindness and your kindness in providing a way of salvation through the Lamb of God. May that lead many to repentance. And may it lead us also to that task which is unfinished, that task of continuing to proclaim your name to the nations until no longer do we have to teach any man to know Yahweh, for all will know him. Amen. What was true for the sons of Israel is true for believers today in Jesus Christ. We have been redeemed by the Son of God who was set apart by Joseph and Mary according to the law of Moses. He is the firstborn over all creation, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent, the ruler of kings on earth. Now to Him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by His blood, and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. You're dismissed.